Um, am I on? I am. Okay. One of the great joys, one of the blessings of my life, probably greatest after my salvation and being married to Karen, is having kids. And um, it's exciting to be a dad, isn't it? I'm wearing my, my, the very best Father's Day tie that I have ever been given. It's the only Father's Day tie I've ever been given, but uh, I nevertheless love it. And uh, excited by that, excited by, my, by being a dad and, and by my children. Uh, we've been without them for a week and a half, and uh, by the time that a week and a half had elapsed, we were definitely ready to see them again. Uh, we were excited to get them yesterday and to, to uh, bring them home and uh, start uh, functioning as a family again. Uh, and that's it's been great to uh, reconnect with the kids and hear about what they were doing at Grandma and Grandpa's and about how Grandpa had one of them playing sheepdog with his flock of sheep now and uh, uh, having a good time. So um, if you're a visitor with us this morning, I want to extend a very special welcome to you and tell you that we're really glad that you have decided to visit with us and to uh, uh, include us on your list of churches you're checking out uh, to find a new church home. Uh, if you are looking for a good church to join, you can stop looking because this is a good place and uh, you should join here because uh, this is a great place to learn God's Word and how it relates to your life. It's a great place to to build relationships with people who will really care about you and who will invest their lives in you. Uh, it's a great place to find people who will assist you in raising your children to know and follow Jesus. Uh, it's a great place to use your spiritual gifts and to reach out into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for your sin and raised from the dead to give you new life. This is a great church, and if you um, are part of it, you know that. And if you're not part of it, we want you to be. Um, we're, we don't apologize for that. This is a great place to be, and uh, we hope you'll join us. Uh, for you folks who are part of the church family, I've been encouraged by the elders to offer you a gentle pastoral admonition uh, to make an effort that when the music starts playing in the hallway to find a seat in here so that we can, um, we can uh, get the service started on time. Uh, we've been trying to take some proactive steps to facilitate that, you know, such as playing music in the hall and having a countdown in here for how much time we've got until we start. Uh, and I know why we have difficulty with this. It's because we love each other so much, and it's been an entire week since we saw this person last, and we want to finish our coffee and continue talking, and that's all very good, and we want that to continue. But bring your coffee. Bring the conversation and come on down. We want to get started on time. So um, please uh, take that admonition if it applies to you, and, uh, and that will help everybody out, okay? Um, all right. Last week we saw that, that Jacob met the Lord Almighty for the first time, and he was converted. Uh, prior to this, he refers to, to God as, uh, when he's talking to his father Isaac, as your God. After this, he refers to the Lord as my God, and that's a change. Uh, it's a difference only in preposition, but it's a change. I mean, not in preposition, in a, in a possessive pronoun. Um, but that is a, that's a significant change because Jacob now recognizes 
Jacob now recognizes God as being his God, and he is now uh, trying, however um, variably, to obey God and to follow him and to uh, live with God as part of a covenant that God has made with him at Bethel. And we saw that last week that he received this covenant, this covenant that God had given to, to Abraham and to Isaac has now been passed to Jacob, and it's not been based on Jacob's behavior up to now, because his behavior up to now has not been great. And his behavior even after this, as we'll see, is less than stellar. But in accordance with God's gracious plan and calling for Jacob's life. And in other words, Jacob enters into the covenant with God in the same way that you and I do, not based on our behavior, but in spite of our behavior, God loves us and offers us a relationship with him on the basis of covenant. And in the same way, God enters into covenant with Jacob, not on the basis of his behavior, but in spite of his behavior, because he loves him and has a gracious plan and a purpose for his life that he needs Jacob to fulfill. And God is going to sovereignly work and orchestrate the circumstances of his life so that Jacob fulfills his plan and purpose for him. And uh, we're going to see also that God not only has chosen Jacob in love, but that he also loves Jacob too much to leave him alone in his sin. God is going to work in Jacob's life to bring blessing, but also to discipline him to bring about radical change in the kind of person that Jacob is. By the way, God does the same thing with you and I. That God loves us when we are in sin, but he loves us too much to leave us as sinners. He wants to change us and to work in us to bring about holiness. And he's going to be working in Jacob's life a little this week uh, with his marriage. By the way, he still does that. Uh, When you get married, it's a wonderful tool for finding out all about how sinful, selfish, and pig-headed you are. Because you get married and you have a spouse and they will tell you if God doesn't. Um, And... And you will see all of a sudden things in yourself that you never would have seen had you not gotten married. And as Martin Luther said, marriage did for me what no monastery could. Right. And some of us. Amen. Right. Uh, Because the reality of it is, is that marriage is very often one of the tools that God uses to sharpen us and to shape us and to mold us and squeeze us uh, into uh, into a pattern of holiness in how we conduct ourselves. And certainly that's going to be true in Jacob's life. Uh, Jacob's marriages, plural, are going to bring him more pain than he can imagine, but they're also going to be the thing that God uses to bring about more change in his life than anything else. So we're going to look at these. Uh, Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses to start with. So, Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. And the stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep. And put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. And he said to them, 
Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the lives? It is not time for the is it? It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, it may not seem like it because God is nowhere explicitly mentioned in this story, but what you can see here is some details in the story that indicate God's presence in Jacob's life and his oversight over Jacob's life. And it's implied rather than explicitly stated. I talked with somebody this last week, and they asked me, how come you don't preach verse by verse through a book like Genesis? I said, because a book like Genesis is narrative. And the point is made in the story rather than in the individual verses. As you look at a book like Philippians, as an example, there's a lot of injunctions that are made. Do this. Don't do that. Start doing this. Stop doing that. Believe this. Don't believe that. And so it becomes very significant to go through each one of those commands. But in a narrative like Genesis, what you see is the point being made in the story rather than explicitly come right out and say it. So in other words, just like in a, just like in a novel, you get whether this person is a good character or a bad character based on their actions and what they say. In the same way, in a narrative like this, a story, you get what you, you're supposed to draw the point from what's, what's shown rather than what's explicitly stated all the time. Make sense? Hope so. Uh, if not, see me afterwards and we'll talk about it some more. Because I really want you to understand that, that not every part of the Bible is exactly the same. And so you can't read them all exactly the same. Uh, but what you see is that God, the God who has promised to be with him at Bethel is with him, and he is working in these circumstances. Jacob's life uh, is going along, and he's, we don't know exactly how far this is uh, from where he is to, from where he went to, to, um, uh, at Bethel to, to where he stops here near Haran, but it's, it's several days on foot, and you're, you're traveling in a day without really reliable maps or ways of getting around. You're traveling on foot because, again, he's had to flee from his father's house from the wrath of his older brother Esau, and he has nothing, and you're in the desert, and he comes to literally the place says the, the realm of the people of the east. Now, the east is a significant direction in the book of Genesis, especially, because where did Adam and Eve settle? They settled 
to the east of Eden. And when Cain was cast out of his family due to the fact that he murdered his brother, where did he go off to? He went off further east. And so the writer of the scripture here is giving us a clue that he's coming to the people of the east, the people who are pagans. In other words, the people who don't worship the living and true God. And Jacob is a man who has just seen the living God, but he's going to a place where no one knows his name and wouldn't live or recognize his rule or authority in any respect. And as we're going to find out, that includes his brother, his, uh, his uncle Laban that he's about to go live with. And Jacob, he just happens to show up near Haran. And he happens to meet some shepherds near a well. And they happen to not only know his uncle Laban, but his cousin Rachel just happens to be walking to the well at that very moment that they're all standing around discussing. And we're meant to see that none of these circumstances are simply coincidence, that God is directing Jacob's path. And on top of that, we're meant to notice a couple of other details here. Number one, Jacob meets the woman he's going to marry, which is Rachel, at a well. And a well is often a place associated with God's blessing, as you might expect. As you look at, what do I need most of all if I live in the desert? Water. And so the well is is a place that's associated with God's blessing because a reliable water source means life, and life means prosperity. If I have a well, I can have flocks, I can have crops, I can have life-sustaining water for everything. If I don't have a well, I'm in a bad way until I find one. And he meets this girl at a well. And in fact, in the book of Proverbs, you see this image carried forward. Proverbs chapter 5 exhorts the husband. He says, about his wife, drink running water from your own well, flowing water from your own cistern. And the idea is that there's to be an exclusivity in the marriage relationship so that God's blessing comes to you through that solitary marriage relationship. And and your relationship with your wife, men, is compared to a refreshing thing like a well of water in the desert. Mine is. I hope yours is. If not, see me afterward. All right. Uh, Number two, this meeting has some really strong parallels to the earlier story. Remember, we looked at how Abraham sent his servant Eliezer to get a wife for his son Isaac. Where did he send him? He sent him off to Haran. Where did Eliezer meet the girl? At the well. In fact, this might be the same well where his father Isaac's wife came to get water. And what we're supposed to see, again, is that God is there. He is present with Jacob, just like he promised he would be. He's even orchestrating the circumstances of the girl he's going to marry, just like his father Isaac's. So Jacob is meant to get the point. Hey, remember that story your dad tells about how God sent the servant and the servant prayed and that God would send him the girl and he met her at a well in Haran? 
here comes the girl. And Jacob is meant to say to say to himself, God's already doing what he promised. He said he'd be with me. Clearly, he's with me. Here comes the girl. I went from my family to go find a wife for my extended family. And here she is. God's already at work. Rachel gets there. Jacob runs over to the well. He wrenches off the stone. By the way, this is a big rock. I think the reason they're waiting for everybody to get there is so that the men together can move the rock. Jacob is a motivated fellow. He moves the rock by himself. And he starts watering the flocks for La- uh, of Laban for Rachel. He's not waiting around for all the, everybody else to get there. I'm going to show this girl what I can do. Men still, still do that. It's okay. It's biblical. All right. Um, in fact, I saw a sign the other day that said um, rules for whitewater rafting. And they had all these safety rules. And they, at the bottom it said, you are not allowed to do anything followed by you know, that is preceded by the words, hey, y'all, watch this. <laughs> okay. Um, but he moves it by himself. He, he kisses the girl. He starts weeping because he's just filled with joy at what God has done for him and bringing him to the place where he can find family, he can find home, he can find a wife. Uh, it's probably not a romantic kiss it, because when you were family in the Middle East, in fact, they still do this in the Middle East, uh, when you're family, you kiss your family. In fact, Middle Eastern men will kiss each other on the mouth. This is a custom I'm glad we have not imported. <laughs> All right? Um, but nevertheless, they will do that. Men will walk down the street holding hands if they are family. That seems a little weird to me, especially if I'm the guy underneath. I want to be the guy with the over at the minimum. All right? Uh, but they will do that. Okay, they will do that. This is why we do not ever gather together and like hold the hand of the man next to you. No, I don't want to even accidentally run into the guy next to me. I never mind hold his hand, right? But customs are different. Customs are different. And so this is not a romantic kiss. It's a familial kiss. It's a recognition like they do in in Italy, you know, where they grab each other. Oh, mwah, mwah, and mamma mia, you know, and all this, right? It's it's that kind of a kiss. And it's, I'm so glad I finally found family. I've been wandering in the desert for weeks. And here I am, finally, I'm with family. And she runs off to tell her dad that Jacob is in town. Now, by the way, they've probably never met him. They don't know him. They live a long distance apart. This is not this is not only pre-railroad. Uh, you know, this is this is just a free road, pretty much. Uh, people did not travel very far. You married a girl in your local village. You didn't go off to college somewhere and meet some girl from somewhere else. You you stayed pretty much in the local area. So you, when a girl got married and went off to a far distant place, you probably never saw her again. And they've probably never met him. They don't know who he is. But he says, hey, I'm Rebecca's son. Oh. So she runs off. Story goes on. 
As soon as Laban heard the news, and this is verse 13, about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Now, the greeting that Jacob gets when he goes to Laban's house is pretty much the best part of the relationship that he ever has in 20 years. This is the high point of his relationship with his uncle right here at the very beginning. He says, it it all goes downhill from here, as we'll see. In fact, uh, what happens here is not the worst of it. It's It gets worse to where Jacob eventually has to flee with his family for his life. But here at the very beginning, Jacob gets greeted with this warm, welcoming greeting. He says, you are surely you're my bone and my flesh. Laban may be doing something, some commentators think, like adopting Jacob as his heir. It's not apparent that Laban has any sons at this point, which is probably why Rachel is serving as the shepherdess. Because normally what you did, if you uh, had the youngest child, you would take them and you would make them the shepherd. She's the youngest child, so she's the shepherdess. Laban probably does not have any sons, but it was important in that day, as it still is to to somewhat culturally for us, to have the continuation of your family line and, and, and to have a male heir to carry on the family. Laban has no male heir. He recognizes Jacob as his, as his nephew, in a sense, as his son. Surely you're my bone and flesh. And he stays with him for a month. Uh, But after he stays there for a month, it's pretty clear that Jacob is planning to be there a while. This is a good idea, by the way. If you have house guests that stay with you for an extended period of time, you should give them a job. (laughs) Something to do to earn their keep. And if you are a farm family, there's lots to do. And he says, you know, we're family, but that doesn't mean you should work for me for nothing. Although I'm feeding you and housing you, uh, that doesn't mean you should work for me for nothing. He says, what do you want to be paid? And he says, he says, well, let me think about it for a second. You've got the older daughter and you've got the younger daughter. Hmm. The older daughter, the text says, had weak eyes. Um, and there's debate about what that means among commentators. Some, some suggest, well, she was cross-eyed. Um, some suggest that she, um, 
that it's a more idiomatic expression for as opposed to easy on the eyes, she was hard to look at. Um, you know, like we would say, fell through the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. Okay, um, she uh, uh, she was not the attractive sister, the older one. But it, it, by contrast, Rachel, on the other hand, says was beautiful in form. That's in other words, she had she had an hourglass figure. She had a beautiful body and appearance. She had a nice face. She was the hot sister, to bring it into modern idiom, okay? And Jacob is like, whoo, Rachel, hubba hubba, that's the one I want, <laughs> okay? And he says, I'll serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now think about this. To be a shepherd is to have a 24-hour-a-day job. Eight bucks an hour, let's say, times 24 hours, times 2,555 days. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's, in fact, it's about $500,000. And Laban says... I'll, I'll take that deal. Not a problem. Half a million bucks to marry my younger daughter? By the way, any of you young men in the audience want to marry one of my daughters? That's what it will be. <laughs> okay. Half a million dollars. Okay. You can pick either one. And I'll hold to the deal. All right. Seven years of slave labor for me. And... After that, we'll let you marry one of the girls. We'll know you're serious and godly by then. Uh, but um, this is an exorbitant price. It's an exorbitant price. You know, traditionally, custom dictated that you did pay a bride price to the father. And the idea was that you compensated the father for the fact that you were taking a member of the family and therefore a member of the workforce away from them. In an agricultural day, that made a little bit of sense. But this is a real price. This is a lot of money. But that's the price that Laban asks, and Jacob says, being young and impetuous, he says, I'll take it. And seven years go by, and he's finally going to get the girl that he loves after seven years. Let's read on. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife so that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. 
And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now try to imagine this. The time has come. Jacob's ready. He goes to his uncle Laban and he asks for his due, which is his daughter's hand in marriage. All this time he's been working to earn his bride, and now is the time. Jacob's passions are excited. He cannot wait to go on his honeymoon with this girl, which is what is implied here in the text. He says, I'm ready to go on my honeymoon with the woman that I love. And he says, look, I'm ready. The time's up. Let's, let's, uh, Let's have the marriage already. And there's a party, and everybody's spirits are high. This is a pagan place. There's probably no small amount of drinking that goes on, and it gets dark. And if you've ever been outside in the, away from the city, you know, this is a, not a day where there are lights. It isn't like now where, you, you know, it's dark in the house. Let's turn on a light, you know, so you can avoid stepping on Legos or whatever. You know, this is it's black dark, and the woman is veiled. And there's probably been some celebratory uh, spirits indulged in. And Laban sees his opportunity to marry off his older daughter instead. Because the marriage begins with the consummation of the relationship. And so rather than hold up his end of the bargain and marry off Rachel, he sends Leah in to the bridal chamber. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up. He's sober at this point, and he realizes, he looks over at the girl in his bed, and it's not the girl it was supposed to be. It is an absolutely monstrous betrayal. I mean, it is a deception beyond deception. It's evil. And on top of that, the girl is complicit in the whole thing. How could she not be? And it's absolutely shameless treachery because not only has has Laban charged an exorbitant bride price for his younger daughter, he doesn't give her. And in a culture in which you did not divorce, Jacob is now stuck being married to a girl he never wanted and doesn't love. Can you imagine? And he goes off to Laban full of righteous anger, as he should be, and and Laban gives him some line of stuff about how, well, in this country, we always marry off the older daughter first, and, you know, she didn't have any suitors, and, you know, here you go. What? Somehow, I doubt that explanation cuts any ice. And yet, he says that he has the audacity to offer that as, the, as a, quote, good reason. And he says, look, you know, the wedding feast is supposed to go for a week. You know, just wait one more week, and I'll let you marry Rachel. But then you need to work another seven years. 
Now, he's compounded betrayal with now even greater betrayal because the original agreement was only for one set of seven years, which is in itself an exorbitant sum. And now it's two? This is the million-dollar woman? Really? But Jacob, because he loves his this girl, he loves Rachel, he says, you know what? If it's 14 years, it's 14 years. I'll do it. And he celebrates the bridal week with Leah as his wife, subject to humiliation in front of the whole community because they knew that the one he wanted was the younger one. And he endures that humiliation and... And then he gets finally Rachel, the girl he wanted to begin with. And this is an instance, I think, of divine retribution and poetic justice that happens to Jacob. Because if you remember, this is the man who deceived his his brother and his father by pretending to be the younger brother. So now he pretended to be the older brother. And now he is deceived by the older sister and her father into marrying her instead of the younger sister. Leah came in the guise of Rachel just like Jacob himself came in the guise of Esau. And God is turning the tables on Jacob through his deceptive, cheating, lying Uncle Laban. Jacob finally meets his match with Laban. And Laban is going to try and take advantage of him every way he can. And that's not to say that everything that Laban did was not sin or that it was in any way approved by God. It wasn't. But it is to say that God used these circumstances to point out to Jacob, oh, you think it's you think you you've, you've got a slick deal being able to get one over on people and you like to pretend to be someone else? How do you like it when somebody pretends to be someone else to you? How do you like it when someone lies and deceives you? And all of a sudden, Jacob, when he understands how that tastes, decides this is not so fun. So with that in mind, I want to just offer a couple points of application here as we wrap up. First question How do you deal with people? How do you deal with people? Are you a person uh, of integrity and honor? Are you a person of integrity and honor? Are you completely above board in all your dealings? Or do you try to tilt the table in some way your direction? Are you always looking for what will accrue to your advantage or some way that you can take advantage of someone else so that you might gain from it? In other words, are you less than completely honest in how you deal with people? Are you deceitful in any way with your boss, with your coworkers, with your spouse? With your children? Are you always looking for a technicality or a loophole? 
If you are, I will assure you that the God who is fully capable of disciplining Jacob and who will discipline Laban is also fully capable of working your circumstances to bring discipline into your life also. And don't think that because you have gotten away with it in the past that the Lord's eyes do not see. Because they do. And God is a God of justice and of love. So his justice will not allow your guilt to go unpunished when you continue in sin. And his love means that bringing discipline and change into your life is something he is very much interested in. Why do you correct your kids? Because you love them. And you cannot allow them to persist in extensive sin. Amen? God loves his children too. He is a good father, far better than any of us who are fathers, though it is Father's Day. God is the ultimate example of what it means to be a good father, and so he will not allow extensive sin to persist because he loves us and because he's a God of justice. Second thing, when you see sin, see your sin in the suffering your sin produces, what do you do? When you see your sin in the suffering your sin produces, what do you do? You see, Jacob found out on the first morning of his honeymoon what it must have felt like to be Esau. Found out that very first morning when the dawn's early light flooded into the tent and there is Leah. All of a sudden, he knew what it was like to be Esau. And sometimes I think that I see myself and my sin in the mirror of somebody else. When I see the hurt that my sin brings into their life, when I see the destruction that I have brought into a relationship or into my family or into a church or anywhere else that my sin goes, which it goes with me everywhere. When I see that, what I see is the wreckage that I have brought. And at that point, all of a sudden, I realize that I am an angry, selfish, prideful, whatever person, right? And at that point, I have a choice to make. And I can either choose, when I see my sin reflected back to me, I can either decide that I'm going to continue plowing ahead like the man James describes. You remember him? He says, don't be like a man who looks in the mirror and sees his reflection and immediately goes away and forgets what he looks like. He says, don't be like that guy. He said, instead, look into the perfect law that gives freedom. And when you, in other words, when you see what is wrong, fix it. Don't just have a moment where you realize, you know what? I've been messing up and go, oh, well, it's just the way I am. Say la vie. Uh, no. When God brings you to a point where you see your sin, the choice that you need to make is the one that leads to repentance. Is the one that says, man, I didn't realize I was messing up like that. I need to stop. 
I need to turn to the Lord. I need to repent. I need to start to change. Because there's only two roads at the end of the day. One leads to holiness and the other leads to more and more and more destruction. Not just relationally, but personally. So the question is, which road are you going to take? When you see your sin and the suffering your sin produces, what will you do? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I do ask for all of us that you would forgive us. Because as we sit here and read Jacob's story, we can stand at a distance in a sense and say, wow. What a messed up dude was Jacob. What a deceitful schemer was Laban. How can you be Leah and go to your wedding night with a man you do not know, that you know does not love you? How can you cheat your sister that way? How can you cheat your brother? How can you lie to your father? And yet, Father, we have lied and cheated and schemed and betrayed in all kinds of other circumstances, and all kinds of other ways. And, Father, we need your forgiveness. We need you to come by your Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives and change us from the inside out. We need you to remake us. We need you to show us in your word the mirror that reveals the flaws in us and does not allow us to turn away without deciding what what it is we're going to fix and address and change by your spirit as we obey your word. Father, we need you to help us. And we pray that you will, Father, by your mighty power, which raised Jesus Christ from the dead. In whose name we pray. Amen.